Chapter 18. I was sent to Leningrad by Hartman Cooper and Stein's main power player, Nicholas Cooper. As Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost were shredding the inhumane fabric of the communist dictatorship, Nicholas had the brilliant idea of illuminating a younger generation of dissidents in the Soviet Union by teaching them about the law. Nicholas wanted us to teach them about all kinds of law, be it constitutional, criminal, civil, or property, raising and grappling with issues about liberty, privacy, social equality, democratic participation, and human dignity. As the undemocratic Russian Empire, along with its secret prison system, was coming apart, Nicholas Cooper's project was to bolster the construction of a better society. It would finally be possible for the Soviet people to have a better country without the gloomy shadow of cannibalistic Bolshevik ideology, where Russians didn't have to eat each other up just to survive. At long last, they could put an end to the prisons of Lubyanka and Matroskaya Tishina. The best and the brightest generation after generation had been locked up in dungeons whose keys were thrown away. Inside those prisons, you were either tortured or given the infamous nine kopeck verdict, which made reference to the cost of the single bullet was fired into the back of your head. All that was about to end, thank God. Finally, liberty for all in a law-abiding society. Our hope was that producing enough food and goods for everyone would also produce peace and prosperity something that people living in the sprawling Russian steppes had never experienced. According to Nicholas, there would no longer be any need to wage hot or cold wars, and we could all live in peace and harmony in law-abiding society. Did I believe that? Yes, maybe I did. I certainly wanted to believe it. My response to Nicholas when he asked me to get involved with him and told me about the opportunity in Leningrad? Let's get to work. Our job was to organize conferences about identifying voters, doing opposition research, and winning elections. We would be teaching young Russians how a real government works, a government elected by the people where there are checks and balances to power a government guided by ethics that are clearly identified and regulated by laws restricting each branch of government. How about free markets and election technology? Talks on all that were in the works, too. Most importantly, the International Institute of Human Rights asked me to write a report on the abuse of political prisoners in Russia, an assignment I immediately accepted with Nicholas's blessing. Basically, I was supposed to get the names of any remaining political prisoners and smuggle the list out and into the hands of respected journalists in the West so that those fearless individuals would be recognized in important publications like Le Monde in France and the Washington Post in the United States. The reasoning behind this project was simple and powerful. At some point, every criminal is looking for a measure of respect. In the late 80s, Soviet politicians were being treated in the West like the assholes and bastards they were. Suddenly, they became aware of their own images. For the first time, they were conscious of the West's assessment of their conduct. If we could identify political dissidents, those bastards in the Kremlin would leave them alone. At least, that was our theory. My job was to get media attention for people in the dissident movement be they doctors, physicists, teachers, writers, or civil servants. 
was a matter of life and death to get their names out there. The Soviets had persistently claimed there were no political prisoners in Russia. It was the government line ever since Khrushchev famously announced in 1959, we lock up only criminals and the mentally ill, not political prisoners. Everyone knew they were lying in order to cover up their sinister activities. As quickly as possible, I had to find out who the dissidents were and get them recognized internationally. Nicholas introduced me to my first two dissidents, Vasya Verbitsky and Lev Horowitz, and both men immediately promised to help identify others. What brave people those first two were to cooperate with me. As I talk about that time, it all feels like a movie. Suddenly, I'm back in my own cinema, seeing my life as a film again. Except this time, the film's in color, with an enchanting voice in the background singing a Russian folk song, a tune that I was not able to get out of my head for a decade. Chapter 19 Lev Horowitz's Gaz 21 Volga was a pretty comfortable sedan. I realized right away that it was an exact copy of a late 50s model Chrysler Royal. However, that long night ago, neither of my two fellow passengers knew about the remarkable similarity between the two vehicles. That was because the only American cars Lev and Vasya had ever seen were those brief shots of vehicles and Russia propaganda movies where poor black people were always being exploited by white, overweight slave owners. The Bolshevik propaganda machine had really never moved past the Civil War era in U.S. history. Of course, that was intentional because anything prior to the Civil War had to include the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Those documents were gigantic leap forwards, not only for Americans, but for mankind as well. In addition, anything after the Civil War had to portray the greatest economical progress in all the history of recorded civilizations, thanks to liberty, trustworthy government, and lawful taxation. For 70 years, Soviet people had been fed the lie that their collectivist regime was the only hope for the oppressed peoples on the planet. God forbid expressing any other world view. If you dared do that, you were the opposition, the fifth column, a contra-revolutionary and a fascist, even though fascists were socialists too. But worst of all, you would be labeled enemy of people. That moniker sounded more like a B-movie from the West about monsters and goblins than a serious category for government opponents. Nevertheless, that time within the Soviet Union, enemy of people was the most frightening tag any citizen could be given. And there, driving with me in this Soviet Volga Chevy copycat car were two former political prisoners who wore that label proudly. They consider themselves patriots, and a communist state is the real enemy of people. While he's driving, Lev opens his third beer and starts singing along with a melancholic song on the radio entitled Tiom Naya Noch, which fits the occasion perfectly. In the back seat, Vasya and I are tossing back shots of vodka, but I can hardly keep up with him. Evidently, Vasya has serious expertise in this activity, making me feel like a sophomore wannabe drinker. The same guy who was nicknamed Dean Martin by my fraternity brothers at Yale in admiration of my excessive consumption of any and all alcoholic beverages. But Vasya, in one hand he holds not one, not two, not three, four vodka tumblers in between his fingers. He fills up each one of them with vodka 
stopping the pour exactly three centimeters below the rim. Despite Lev's stop-and-start driving in the road's potholes, Vasya is able to knock back all four glasses without wasting a drop. It's a performance worthy of one of those death-defying acrobats at Cirque du Soleil. Sip vodka, don't shoot it, he says. Smell the vodka as you swirl it in your glass. Exhale through your nose to fully appreciate its aroma, and then you can swallow it. I tell him, hey Vasya, your eyes are turning as red as the Soviet flag. It's on purpose, Luke, he replies, so that me and my country finally can understand each other. I have a joke, injects Lev from the front seat. Go ahead, illuminate us. Lenin is making love to Krupskaya, his wife. Lemon says, Comrade Krupskaya, did I hurt you? She says, no, Vladimir Ilyich. Why do you ask? Lenin says, because you moved. We all start choking on our laughter. You moved, repeats Vasya, splattering my face with crumbs from a sandwich he had been eating and spraying me with vodka. But then his laughter turns into a prolonged cough attack. Let's drink to the wives who know how to move, says Vasya, opening another beer. My wife, Marina, should read more about Krupskaya. Vasya starts laughing so hard I think he's about to have a heart attack. Hey guys, I say, what about the seminar? I was supposed to organize one here, teaching about governance, free market economy, and how to win elections. Whoever gave you this assignment must have been drinking terrible Samagon. Sometimes when that stuff is not brewed at the right temperature, it can be toxic. Are we going to talk about anything else but vodka? Cognac? I'm serious. The seminar could be very helpful. You people are about to reform your entire society. You're not another Dean Reed, are you? Who's Dean Reed? You don't know who Dean Reed is? No. We call him the Red Elvis. Never heard of him. He was an American rock star from Colorado who came to the USSR believing in Marxism-Leninism. When he got disillusioned and suddenly wanted to go back home, his body was discovered floating in a lake in East Germany. Of course, Stasi people had nothing to do with it, right, Lev? Right. You're not a Marxist-Leninist, are you, Luke? Not one bit. I'm a Jeffersonian Republican. That's why we're drinking with you. Otherwise, we'd end up at the bottom of that lake alongside you. Suddenly, I turn pale and erupt into an uncontrollable bout of coughing myself. Are you okay? Seeing me unable to breathe, Lev pulls the car over. I scramble out of the car into the side of the road and start vomiting my guts out. I'm shaking terribly, too. Vasya holds me around the waist so I don't fall on my face, which he is splashing with cold water. No more vodka for you, my friend. No more vodka. Oh, God, we thought you could drink. You call that shit vodka, I managed to say in between more convulsive vomiting? Lev hands me a paper towel to dry my face and dabs another towel around my mouth. Suddenly I can breathe again. I'm all right now. You want some beer, asked Lev. I didn't vomit enough, I shout feebly. You people are crazy. I don't know what I'm doing here. Chapter 20 Finally, we arrive at the birthday party. It's happening in a cafeteria called Stalovaya on Machovaya Street, right next to Legitmi. I'm there with a group of typical Russian intelligentsia, engineers, teachers, doctors, writers, and journalists. Everyone's drinking vodka, except me. Vazia is so drunk he can't stop laughing. Lev is about to make a toast. 
Lev would always come out with one of those toasts that are told like fables. You hear the story, and then at the end, you drink to the moral of it. Drinking in Russia is the most moral thing you can do. Being moralistic is allowed and encouraged as long as you have a glass of vodka in your hand. To give his toast, Lev gets up on the table with a teacup full of vodka in his hand. He raises his voice to get everyone's attention. Comrades, friends, this one is very serious. Listen up. Imagine three trains on parallel tracks speeding towards the same final destination. The three trains are called the past train, the present train, and the future train. Most people always choose one of the trains and ride it until the end of their lives. That's where you see people who live only in their past. They keep complaining about what happened to them all throughout their lives. They never see the present and never think of the future. These people are scared of progress and they continually refer to the good old days. We have a past train passenger among us. Everyone looks at Anatoly Gavaruchin, a mathematics professor at the State University sitting at the end of the table. What, says Anatoly, nervously lighting a cigarette. I don't live in the past. Why are you all suddenly staring at me? Everyone bursts into laughter. Come on, Tolia, says Lev. Look at the way you've dressed. People wore suits like that after the Second World War. That was 40 years ago. So what if it was 40 years ago, says Anatoly? People had style in those days. Yes, but look at your shoes, your haircut. Everything is from those days. It's like you refuse to live in today's world. What's there to like about the today's world? Rampant corruption in our society, degradation of all our moral values, lies and manipulation by the authorities? Shush, Tolia. You going mad? Quiet, my friend. If they hear you, you're toast and all of us are going down with you. There's no point in getting agitated. We're having a good time here. Maybe you're right. But who cares? Nothing can be changed anyway. Still, you look like someone who's coming out of the archives of life, not someone from today's world. You look like a museum exhibit. Anatoly Sergeyevich, come on. Drink this vodka and loosen up. Hey, Nadia, give Tolia a kiss. He hasn't been kissed by a woman for 25 years. Nadia, pretty brunette, goes up to Anatoly and lands a long, passionate kiss smack on his lips. Now he's coming back to life, I can see it, says Lev. Look at him, he's changing trains. Hey, we want to change trains too, someone else shouts. Nadia, 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 others start chanting. That's quite a lot of train changes. Our country is poor, our railway system is no good. Everyone bursts into laughter. Anatoly takes a glass of vodka, stands up, and people stop talking to listen to him. How about this one? The man creates a hero's shrine in his house and starts worshiping it. He makes sacrifices, buys expensive ornaments and gifts for the shrine. One day, God comes to him and says, Hey you, stop spending everything. If you become poor, you're gonna put the blame on me. That's not yours, Tolia, says Lev. That's Aesop's fable. Who cares? Aesop knew more about survival than anyone. You people are losing your minds, somebody shouts. They'll squander the fortunes of our country and one day we're going to become a bankrupt state, somebody else calls out. Good, says Lev. Maybe then we can start again and make a better country. Let's drink to Aesop, our brother in slavery. Chapter 21. 
Everyone at the party is drunk and laughing hysterically, except Vazia. I realize he is using the happy distractions to get down on the floor and briskly crawl under the table toward me. Shielded from view by the long tablecloth, he locates my leg. Vasya pulls a piece of paper out of his pocket, holds it ever so carefully and waits. Then when I stretch out my left leg, I feel Vasya silently grabbing my shoe and holding my ankle with his cold, sweaty hand. Quickly, he places the folded piece of paper inside my sock and lets go of my leg. I freeze as if a bolt of electricity has run up my spine. Lev must have been watching me closely because that was his cue to lean toward me and whisper quietly into my ear. Luke, those are the names you wanted. Anatoly gave them to us. I look around apprehensively. At the next table, a group of men in dark suits are watching everyone at our table, surveying our party with palpable curiosity. Acknowledging their presence, I pretend to smile back at the men as Lev again whispers in my ear. I'm sure those people are gabashniki. KGB is written all over their faces. Guard that paper well, my friend. If they find it, all of us are dead. Suddenly, Lev yells out, Who wants another drink? Double shot for me, please, calls out Vasya, suddenly popping up across the table as if appearing out of nowhere. I notice Lev, Vasya, and Anatoly exchanging a secret glance. Come on, Lev yells at the waiters. Serve some drinks to the hardest working men in all of Russia. As the bottles of vodka are brought out, Vasya continues chain drinking out of a habit or maybe fear. Lev leans over to me, smiling like a monkey, and whispers, If something goes wrong, we will both die. But we will never rat on you, okay? So do not worry. You must do the same. I laugh and nod at him like I just heard the funniest joke in the world. Vasya turns to the revelers again, raising his glass. Happy birthday, Anatoly Sergeyevich. Happy birthday, you fucking Einstein. Vasya looks around the table but can't spot Anatoly. Where's that museum exhibit? And where's that whore? I only asked her to kiss him. Where'd he run off with her? More raucous laughter. Now I know why he's so dressed up. Chapter 22 I get up and stroll slowly to the men's room so as not to attract any attention. Once there, I go into a toilet stall and lock the door behind me. Without pulling down my pants, I sit down on the toilet cover and carefully reach down, find the folded paper in my sock, and pull it out. Unfolding the little piece of paper, I find a list of scribbled names in Russian. There are a score of names in tiny print, weird-sounding names, important names. Names of the brave people who are standing up against the communist regime. My heart starts throbbing inside my throat. One glance at that list makes it clear that there is no way I can memorize all those names. I take out the pocket knife I always carried with me and cut a tiny slit between the heel and the sole of my right boot. Inside that slit, I carefully fold and place the list. Suddenly I hear Vasya walking into the men's room very drunk and humming some Russian song as he starts unzipping his trousers. Without making a sound, I remain motionless inside the toilet stall. Abruptly, the door to the men's room bursts open and those suspicious men in dark suits rush in. They grab Vasya and shove his head down inside the urinal. Mortified, Vasya starts wailing for help. Hey, I've done nothing wrong, he yells breathlessly. Please stop, you're hurting me. I swear I've done nothing wrong. Help. 
I stand up, flush the toilet, and step out of the stall. Seeing me, the men stop in their tracks, but still clutch on Navasya. Let him go, I say to them calmly. They are looking at one another, not knowing how to proceed. Their leader stands firm, glaring at me, but befuddled. I move toward him casually, clutching my unopened knife in my fist for a ballast. I take advantage of the paralysis by swinging a sharp uppercut at the leader's jaw. It connects and he drops to the floor, with blood oozing from his mouth. I'm just a tourist here, I say, calmly, rubbing my sore knuckles. But I did some boxing in my country, so let that man go or else I'll waste your fucking faces too. Flabbergasted, the men let Vasya go. He straightens up, moaning softly, and tries to smooth out his rumpled suit. I'm making calls about your conduct to the United States Embassy, to the Human Watch Center in Helsinki, and to my lawyer in Geneva. I can see that their leader's bloodthirsty eyes can't focus. My punch surprised him. When he stands up, he's rubbing his bleeding mouth. He tries barking back at me like a bulldog, though some of the aggression has been knocked out of him. That man is a criminal. Our conduct is none of your business. He's not a criminal, I say. You're hurting him just because he's having a drink with me. You need to let him go. I have no doubt you have the wrong person. Come on, let him go. Somehow my calm voice seems to have a soothing effect in their leader. Okay. Maybe it's a case of mistaken identity, mister. We apologize for the inconvenience. The leader turns and leaves with the other men. You okay, I ask Vasya. He stares at me in shock, not knowing how to answer. Vasya, are you okay? I repeat. Come over here, let me help you. I soak some paper towels in cold water and apply them to the bruises on his face and forehead. His hands are still shaking. I put some hand soap on his head and start washing off the filth from the urinal. You saved my life. The sons of bitches would have killed me if you weren't here. I have to admit, they weren't very nice. It was funny the way you said you were calling the American Embassy. It sounded good, right? But Helsinki and Geneva? Also just good names? Yeah, I could have added that it was calling my mother in Paris because she's French. Next time, Luke, I should also add the United Nations. For some reason, they're afraid of the United Nations. Me too. I'm afraid of the United Nations. For good and bad reasons, everyone should be. You're good, Luke. You're very, very good. Then suddenly Vasya goes quiet. Despite the small talk, I can see his eyes are drowning, layer by layer, in fear. I don't want to leave this bathroom, he announces. Listen, Vasya, I'm going to take you home and stay with your family tonight. No one will dare touch you, I promise. I will use scary names like UNESCO if you want, okay? Suddenly a ray of relief appears on Vasya's face. I'm glad that after all this, you can still be funny. What about tomorrow night? What about then? What's going to happen tomorrow night? Hey, you want me to move in with your family? You've got two rooms, five people sleeping there already, no? Where do you want me to stay? We have an armchair bed in the kitchen. Okay, okay. I'll stay as long as you can tolerate me. You're a good man. Maybe you're American after all. What did you think I was? Sorry, I don't trust anybody. But you Americans trust people because your people are free. Free for now. Know what Jefferson said? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. 
Asya's eyes open wide. He glances worriedly at the door to the men's room, as if the men were just outside listening to us. I understand his concern. You mean the rock and roll musician, right? Yeah, I say loudly. That guy from Jefferson Airplane. I wanted to make sure that anyone spying us could not associate Vasya Verbitsky with one of the founding fathers of the United States. I love rock and roll, continues Vasya. Yeah, me too. Now in softer tones he says, I don't know how to thank you. Can I hug you? Sure, hug me. Vasya hugs me tight and whispers, Do you want to eat some good chicken? Yes, I say. I'm sick of hot dogs and borscht. Let's get some homemade vodka on our way. You people. We'll take the bus. It's safer with people around. 